Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When you hear the phrase liberal elite, who do you think of? For a lot of people, it's professors sitting in an ivory tower with suede elbow patches on their blazers. And certainly, thinking of professors as liberal is correct. They overwhelmingly lean left. Elite is kind of a different question. Most professors aren't rolling in money, so it depends on how you define elite. But back to the liberal thing. How did professors as a group become so liberal? And who cares? There aren't that many professors in the country, so why does it matter what their ideology is? Sam Abrams joins me to answer those questions. He's a professor at Sarah Lawrence College who has researched the ideological diversity at universities around the country. Sam, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I know you've looked at this in terms of data, and I want to dig into that. But first, let's just go back to that big picture question, which is, even if professors are overwhelmingly liberal, does it matter? I mean, clearly the country is fairly evenly split, Republican and Democrat. So whatever the effect of liberalism on campus is, it somehow seems to be balanced out by culture overall. So does this matter? I think it does. I think if you look to where social movements around the country have started, they they start on our colleges and universities. It's hard to look back to the 60s and not think about protests mm -hmm. uh, around the nation, whether it's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young songs about Youngstown, Ohio, or, or we think about uh, protests uh, against Ronald Reagan in, in the 1980s at, at People's Park in Berkeley. So much of our nation's cultural capital, where ideas come from, where movements start, where ideas are formed, these are engines of innovation, engines of ideas, they, they emanate from our universities. If we look at where around the country uh, we see a lot of growth and development where tech is starting, where meds, uh, so the term is meds and eds, where, mm -hmm. you know, all of this sort of work occurs. It's at our colleges and universities. So while I completely agree that the number of faculty in this country is not huge whatsoever, right, right. Uh, there is a very outsized influence that, that faculty have. So I, I think that what we as a community of faculty do uh, does shape quite a bit about how we see the country and how we engage both domestically and globally as well. So explain the numbers that you found in your research in terms of like how professors are split ideologically. What we found, or what I found rather, was that in the 60s up into today, if you take a look at the ideological balance of Americans, it hasn't really moved quite frankly. Hmm. You know, Americans lean a little bit to the right on the ideological spectrum, okay. and that's been the case for the past 50 or 60 years. If we look at then college students over the same time period, it is definitely the case that in the 1960s, college students did lean pretty progressive, pretty liberal. And by the 1970s, mid-1970s, they leaned slight left. And they've been leaning slight left ever since. And this is college students. These are college students, okay, okay. yes, indeed. So we have college students leaning slight left, except in the 60s when they were much more left. Okay. But since the 70s, they've been slight left. The American public has been very stable, uh, slight right. And I, I've spent uh, over a decade looking at that. And then the interesting group are faculty. So in the 1960s, the faculty were actually less progressive, less left of center than the students that they were teaching. 
and they were slight left until the mid to late 90s. By the mid to late 90s, professors started veering way left, so much so that if you take a look at the data, you know, they're just on a, on a different planet on average uh, compared to both the American populace at large and then the very students that they teach. And, and what percentage of professors did you say, say they lean like very much to the left? Uh, you're looking at uh, 60 to 65 percent. Really? Okay. But and then the American public as a whole? Uh, not that much. Uh, 10, 12, 15 percent. Okay, that is a huge difference. But here is my other question. You said that in the 60s, in the 70s, professors in the 80s, professors said, oh, yeah, we lean slightly left. Um, But then something like 20 years ago, people started to move. Professors started to say we lean very left. Yes. Right. Exactly right. What happened in the in the 90s or how did that shift occur? Can you tell? Yes. So a couple of things. The first is this principle that we have in the social sciences called homophily. And that is basically the idea that birds of a feather flock together. People like to be around like-minded people, for better or for worse. Uh, and we see this uh, in, in practically every dimension, whether it's it's musical tastes, housing tastes. You know, some people are, are suburban types. Other people definitely like urban. And we have this sorting effect that, that occurs. And we see this all over nature and, and in various facets of, of human life. So, you know, you're going to see people who go into academia have a particular bend and it tends to be more liberal. And as more and more people become more liberal, it, it, it sort of has this multiplying effect. It's a lot easier to be part of the dominant group that way. So that's one of the, the causes. Uh, and the other is, quite frankly, that professors began to see themselves differently in the 1990s. They began to see themselves as much more of this professional class. And what I mean by that mm. is they saw this as these, you know, they're not just teachers, but they're teacher scholars, they're teacher activists. And one of the things that changed very, very strongly was that it's not just you teach ideas, but you can also teach activism and social change through that. If you look at various scholarly groups and and, and even uh, the mission statement of, of, of places like Sarah Lawrence, it's not just education for the sake of education. It's education for the sense of impacting social change with it. But hasn't hasn't that always been true? I mean, I think about very elite schools, and part of their mission very often has been to educate, at first, men, not just to make money, but to be leaders, right, to mm-hmm. lead the country. So not just, like, you're here to learn physics, right? right? More than that. You're here to learn things and then take that and do good for the world in, like, however that's interpreted. I also think about the 60s and the 70s, and, like, they were very outspoken professors when you think about like the students rights movement mm-hmm. and civil mm-hmm. rights and stuff who were out there and they weren't just saying here's the reading in our class this week they were saying like and here's how to change the world kind of thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the thing is we don't have great data on how many people were actually doing that okay what we know for sure and and, and this has been done and well documented quite frankly uh, by various scholars who have studied the sort of change in scholarly organizations is that mission groups like anthropological groups for instance or historians and the American Association of Historians have taken an overt mission of activism and that is a very big change from what we saw earlier. The, these mission statements did not exist as strongly. Mm. Um, you hear a lot about the Modern Language Association. You know, do they do they take a position on Israel? Um, I'm not so sure what Israel has to do, for instance, with uh, a lot of linguistics, but they're taking positions on this. That's interesting. I didn't know that the Modern Language Association, like, 
thought about politics in that way. That's interesting. Well, and, and that's my point. I mean, you know, you can't look at Inside Higher Ed or the Chronicle of Higher Ed without seeing regular discussions over, you know, the American Historical Association actually just debated and, and uh, rejected the notion of boycotting Israel. Again, I'm not so sure I understand what the AHA has to do with Israel as, as, a, as a scholarly body whatsoever. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Sam Abrams, a professor at Sarah Lawrence College who's researched the ideological diversity of professors around the country. Uh, give me a sense of the geography here. Do more conservative parts of the country have more conservative professors? Do more liberal parts of the country have more liberal professors? Sure. So it, it, it's a great question, and I thank you very much for asking it. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. Uh, Nick Kristoff, uh, had a series in the New York Times uh, about, uh, you know, the, this imbalance of faculty on college campuses. And he took a lot of heat because he kept focusing on an, a select number of small liberal arts colleges. We hear quite a bit about Oberlin, for instance. Uh, the New Yorker did a huge piece on that. And we, we obviously uh, have heard about Middlebury after the Charles Murray-related uh, violence. Uh, so in trying to parse this out, one of the things that uh, there's been a lot of attention to is, is it small liberal arts colleges? Is it just these elite liberal arts colleges full of liberal faculty taking these positions? Uh, I have some data uh, that has uh, looked at tens of thousands of faculty every year for the, for the last 25 years. And uh, I can answer that very empirically and very comfortably. And the answer is no. People hmm. look to liberal arts colleges as sort of these... Um, I don't know, leaders for this liberal movement, but actually it's very evenly dispersed across college types. Uh, big universities that are public, we see the uh, very strong liberal lean. Uh, private universities, we see a strong liberal lean. Uh, we even see a liberal lean among Catholic and religious schools. It's a little less intense, but it, it, it's pretty much uniformly liberal leaning around the country. Uh, in terms of geography, are certain areas a little more uh, liberal than others? The answer is yes. Uh, New England is, is, is far more liberal. It's much harder to find a conservative professor or a, a hard right professor in mm. the New England area. But it is not the case that, in contrast, the South or parts of the uh, the West, thinking Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, are, are conservative. They're all left-leaning. Conservative students have talked about coming to campus and finding few professors or a few other conservative students to talk to. What have you seen in your own experience? Do you feel like that's an issue or or, or not not so much? No, I, I think the conservative students are, are exactly right. And I think it is a disaster for higher education, quite frankly. And I don't use the word disaster lightly. Students need to be free to question. And when a student is in a seminar or in a lecture and has a question and is afraid to ask it because they know that if it's misperceived or misunderstood or perceived to be uh, problematic in some way, uh, ideologically, or a question that might uh, promote some form of harm uh, to others based on trigger warnings and safe spaces and so on, that is the antithesis of what we're supposed to do as professors. Obviously, we're not supposed to promote things like bigotry, racism, homophobia, and, and I don't know anyone who would uh, agree uh, that that's something we should be talking about. But when students can't ask questions, that's the problem. Have you ever been in a class where um, there's a lot of tension in the room because either you or students are not sure what kinds of ideas or questions or whatever like cross a line that you're not, you know, that you feel like, uh oh, what if that's unacceptable? Absolutely. And it happens all the time. And 
it's an honor for me when that happens because it means someone let their guard down enough to be honest and to expose themselves a little bit. And that, and you know, when that happens, I jump up and I immediately take control because if you feel that there's some tension or something weird happened, that's where my experience as someone who's feeling now much older than his or his students, I, I felt <laughs> a lot, you know, I, I feel like I'm aging quite a bit that way, <laughs> but it's my job with my 15 years of experience doing this to say, let's talk about this. Let's break this down. See, it's so tricky because uh, like, where do you draw the line? If somebody, I can't, I, I can't answer. That. I know, I, mean, I know. The Supreme and, Court even says, you know, you'll know it when you see right. it in, in, in a lot of these. But areas. it's sure. it's even tricky. I don't even know that I would know it when I saw it. Like, okay, so I think a lot of people would say, well, if you had a member of the Klan speak, well, that that's unacceptable. You wouldn't invite that person. But but then, what if somebody said, well, but how about somebody who championed a war that mm -hmm. maybe uh, was a needless war and killed tens of thousands of people? Absolutely. How about that person? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I like which is worse. I mean, I, I these are these are like super hard things to figure out. Exactly. I mean, the the Klan is obviously a much easier case than say someone who championed, uh, you know, the, the Gulf War or something like that. But again, this is where faculty should be adults and discuss it. And faculty should say, look, we're comfortable with this. We're not comfortable with this. They should be asking, are we? limiting viewpoints by doing this. What is this person going to say? Should we present an alternative perspective or should we straight out ban the person from coming? And while I can't give, a, again, a bright line answer, my, my hope would be that faculty would sort of step up and, and sort of say we demand some form of balance. The point of, of some of this research that I've done is to show that it's hard for faculty demand, to demand balance when there's already no balance on college campuses whatsoever. So if we can reestablish that balance, that would be Good. Some people have encouraged things like a litmus test or affirmative action for professors or things like that. Litmus tests are very scary. That's the antithesis of, of, of what uh, I think free inquiry is about. Affirmative action for professors based on ideology is also a very scary con you know, idea to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how I would define it. In fact, I wouldn't want you to label me liberal or conservative. I'm very comfortably in the middle. Uh, so I would hate it if someone says, well, actually, no, we're going to classify you as a conservative. I, I don't like that. I wouldn't want that. Uh, in that regard. Do, do you ever get like the cold shoulder from your colleagues or push back or feel like, oh, gosh, I, you know, all the time. I, I wish you weren't talking about this. this yes, is not, all the time. Yeah, okay. I have regularly been ostracized at Sarah Lawrence. I'm happy to say this on, on the air. Uh, it's very uncomfortable to me. I, I, we regularly have issues with certain searches in certain fields because I don't think there's enough diversity in those fields about how they're taught or their perspectives. Uh, that the people are brought in uh, to teach. You know, the, my colleagues want a certain way of seeing the world. I say, you know, we already have five people who see it that way. Let's try to bring in someone else with a different viewpoint mm -hmm. on this very question. Um, it has led to a lot of trouble for me. That being said, I have tenure. I'm very comfortable now that I have that. And, you know, I'm pushing for this because I think my position is correct, which is simply it, we're doing a disservice to our students if we don't present this multiplicity of ideas. Sam Abrams is a professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College. He's also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Sam, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by. If you're wondering, like I was, what defines right-leaning or left-leaning and whether there are sets of issues that you have to subscribe to, the answer is no. Abram says he classifies students, professors, ordinary people the way that they classify themselves. And interesting to note, faculty in the humanities tend to be more left-leaning than those in math, science, and engineering. 
Wellesley College in Massachusetts has actually been having conversations about ideological diversity on campus. On our website, we've got a link to a story from our colleagues at WGBH about their efforts. That's at innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Hi, this is Kara again. Think about the podcasts you enjoy. 99% Invisible, maybe, or Does Sex and Money, or You Must Remember This. There are thousands of great podcasts out there. Now, do you have a friend or a family member who doesn't even know what podcasts are? If you do, tell them about one that you think they'd really like, and maybe show them how to download it. Then use the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D, and tell us what you're recommending. And thank you so much for spreading the word. In 2015, football player Rob Gronkowski went on Jimmy Kimmel Live, and Kimmel asked him, this was kind of a stunt, to read a passage from an erotic book on the air. Here's what Gronkowski said to Kimmel, and this made headlines the next day. I mean, I haven't read a book since ninth grade when they made me, like, you know, you don't raise your hand, but they call on you, a mocking to remember or whatever, mockingbird to remember. Right. Yeah. He went to the, the University, of, University of Arizona, folks, by the way. Let me hold on. I'll hold on. And Gronkowski's approach to reading is actually not all that unusual. A 2003 study found that about 93 million American adults, that's almost 40% of adults in the country, read at basic or below basic levels. Mark Seidenberg has spent years studying reading and how good we are at it. He's a professor of psychology and cognitive neuroscience at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author of Language at the Speed of Sight, How We Read, Why So Many Can't, and What Can Be Done About It. Mark, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So I talked about that study showing that almost 40% of American adults read at basic or below basic levels of reading. That was kind of shocking for me. I wonder, did it surprise you? It did. It's a very large number. And, you know, this is large numbers, not just people who are poor and haven't had the opportunity to learn to read, but includes people from a pretty broad spectrum of economic backgrounds. Mm. So it's a lot of people in a lot of positions, jobs, situations, and so on, who have pretty limited reading skills. Do you think that the people who you might classify as having basic or having below basic reading skills, would they think of themselves as not very good readers? Oh, that's such a good question. I don't think they would evaluate their reading that way. It's more that reading is not a major part of their lives that is beyond, you know, really simple kinds of reading. And unfortunately, you know, the amount of time you spend on the task actually influences your skill throughout the lifespan. And so the question of whether they would see themselves as good or poor readers is more like, oh, reading's not really that important to me. Hmm. When we say, like, people are just a basic reader or they read at below basic level, which apparently something like 40% of the country does, like, what does that mean practically? What are these people reading? What are they not reading? What are they understanding? What are they not understanding? The terms basic and below basic are ones that are used to describe people who, we don't want to just talk about people as illiterate 
can't read anything. There are relatively few of those. Um, we have people who can read. They can read basic things for their work, but don't read outside of it or read minimally, and who really will not be able to do things like manage their own health care because there's a lot of reading involved in going through those documents about what to do, instructions from your physician. They won't be able to help out with their own children's education to the extent that they might like because the kid is right. coming home with things that are more demanding than they themselves are able to handle. So they're not engaging in more complex texts, and they're not able to gain from them the kinds of knowledge that you can only get from that kind of text, and they're not seeking them out. So they sort of never get practice looking at complicated sentences, and then when they have to, like if you have a complicated disease or something and somebody gives you a sheet on it, you just, it, you don't have any practice doing it. Yeah. The, the amount of experience one has reading and the kinds of texts one reads has a huge impact on skill and on ability to learn from text and on ability to evaluate what one's reading or compare one document to another. And, you know, right in the current era, the ability to evaluate the kinds of things that are out there on the Internet and on Twitter and so on is a really crucial skill. And I'm concerned that people, not enough people, have the ability to go beyond the 140-word tweet to kind of figure out what's true and what, how they could figure out, find out what's true. And that, that's based in part on reading. So let me take a step back and ask some bigger questions. One is, is people's ability to read something that's gotten better or worse over, say, the last, like, 40 or 50 years? Are we in a downward trajectory? Are we, like, steadily climbing upwards to more people being better readers? We're on a very, very slow trajectory to people becoming better readers. The problem is it's not a very steep increasing curve. Um, so people are better. They have to be better. So the kinds of texts, you know, there are these changes over time in what people need to know. So the skills that would have been relevant 50 years ago and would have made you a great reader 50 years ago would not be adequate for today. You know, the, the bars keep moving. Mm -hmm. And so in one sense, yes, reading abilities are improving. However, uh, not well enough for enough people, and certainly lots of people, they're not moving very much at all. How do we compare to other countries? Are we better readers, worse readers? What's going on? Well, this is a source of a huge controversy because the United States, on these various comparisons to other countries, always comes out sort of in the middle of the pack and mediocre and has for a long time. The way it works is the United States system works very well for some people, uh, okay for others, and really poorly for a large number of people. And our reading abilities, if you look at the whole range of them, overlap with those from other countries. However, we have fewer people at the high end and more people at the low end. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Mark Seidenberg, professor of psychology and cognitive neuroscience at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's also the author of the book, Language at the Speed of Sight. So here's the root question of all this. Why are we not good at teaching kids to read in school? I mean, is this something that we just have not really figured out how to teach effectively? Well, in the book, I talk about the disconnect between what we know about reading from various scientists around the world having studied it for a long time and 
um, what teachers are taught about how reading works and children learn. So on the education side, I, d I don't think we're doing an adequate job in preparing teachers for teaching kids to read. I think they are left to figure it out on their own, which is not effective for them or for the children. And um, on the science side, we see lots of things that we know about reading that really could be translated into better practices, but there's this disconnection. And so the conversation doesn't take place. So the simple answer is yes, we know quite a lot about how children learn to read and what the sources of successes and failures are and things that would be necessary uh, to become a skilled reader. On the practice side, we're not making much connection with that research. And in fact, teachers are sort of left with misconceptions about how reading works that really make scientists pull their hair out. How is that possible? Like, we did not start trying to teach kids to read yesterday. So if this science is around and, you know, elementary schools have been around for a while, how is it possible that you've got scientists and universities who, like, know these are good ways to teach reading, these aren't really that effective, and you've got teachers across the country doing sort of whatever and trying to figure it out for themselves? How have we not like forged a better connection between those people to say, hey, you know that thing you're trying to do? We've been studying that. Let us help you out. Well, I wrote the book in part because I've been saying that for many years, uh, and so have many <laughs> other sci reading scientists in this country and in other countries. This is a big enterprise with a lot of people doing this kind of research. And in country after country, you have the scientists sort of being pushed aside as though these things that we've learned aren't really relevant. Why? Why are the scientists being pushed aside and who's pushing them? Basically, there's been a split between education and science from the start. And the educators are often uh, intellectually isolated. They're in their own uh, part of the university. And um, the opportunities for exchanging ideas with other people who study things like reading are limited. And basically, over a long period of time, they've developed sort of a rationalization for why this is okay. Educators think that teachers, prospective teachers, cannot be taught and should not be taught methods for teaching reading. It's not part of teacher preparation. It's not part of teacher training. Uh, whereas on the science side, we would say, hey, we should be thinking about how what we know about reading and children's learning can be turned into effective methods and what the implications are for what should happen in the classroom. So there's a very big cross-cultural divide that has been very difficult to bridge. And I wrote the book in part because I was tired of getting turned away at the door. If you were a parent um, who maybe was never really into reading that much, you know. Um, you've got a kid now who's either learning to read in school or is going along in school and obviously reading sort of part of, of part of what they do every day. What would you do to help your child if like reading was really never your thing? Well, it doesn't have to be the parent's thing. Um, there are all sorts of things that parents or care other caregivers can do to help the kid get into reading. Um, Many of them start before the kid even goes to school. Spoken language is really hugely important. So the range of things that children hear spoken to them and um, the vocabulary that they hear, the different uses of language that they hear just in speaking uh, is really uh, crucial to language development, spoken language development. And that is a huge factor in becoming a reader. So 
a lot of the things that you can do for a child don't actually turn on you, the parent being a reader, but rather um, building the language, being aware that the language that you use with your kid is important. One of the things that's really interesting is we all talk about reading books to children. One of the great things about reading books to children is it gets them interested in books, but the other thing is the language in those books is really interesting. It includes words that and expressions that we wouldn't normally use in right. speech. And, right. and so when you read to your kid, you're actually building their spoken language. That, that parent doesn't have to be a reader. That parent just has to be able to read to their kid. What would you say to somebody who's like, listen, I mean, okay, so 40% of the country reads at basic or, or below basic levels. Maybe that's not the greatest, but look, we've got a a really strong economy in many ways. There's a lot of invention. There's a lot of entrepreneurship. A lot of the most creative companies in the world um, sit in the United States, are headquartered in the United States, were created by Americans. Maybe we don't need to be any better in reading. Well, then who's going to get left behind there? So it's true that the United States has had the biggest economy uh, and continues to do so. And it's a sort of dystopian view that it's only going to take a literate elite to lead our country forward. Uh, This seems to me a recipe for a a society that has even greater inequalities than it has now. Hmm. Mark Seidenberg is the author of Language at the Speed of Sight, How We Read, Why So Many Can't, and What Can Be Done About It. He's also a professor of psychology and cognitive neuroscience at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Mark, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. We're glad to be here. We've got a reading test for you on our Facebook page so you can gauge your own reading level. That's at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative in Rochester, Minnesota, to build global destinations for life science, medicine, and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. By the late 1960s, there were a lot of movements for equality and respect that were in full swing. Civil rights, women's rights, student rights. But there were still places in the halls of power where not a whole lot had changed, and a new world did not seem inevitable. One Yale graduate who had heard that coeducation might be coming to Yale wrote to his alumni magazine, quote, Gentlemen, let's face it. Charming as women are, they get to be a drag if you're forced to associate with them each and every day. Think of the poor student who has a steady date. He wants to concentrate on the basic principles of thermodynamics, but she keeps trying to gossip about the idiotic trivia all women try to impose on men. That letter writer was far from alone in his feelings. But change was coming. And for some of these elite schools, it would be one of the biggest changes in hundreds of years. Nancy Weiss Malkiel writes about those years of change in Keep the Damn Women Out, the struggle for coeducation. She's a professor emeritus of history at Princeton. Nancy, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Kara. You read one of my favorite quotes. 
That is quite a quote, isn't it? Um, so before some of those most elite schools started going co-ed in the late 60s and the early 70s, what was college education uh, like for women and what were their options? Because clearly, you know, the Yales, the Princetons, th those were off the table. For almost a century, the preferred option for the most talented women high school students was to go to a women's college, ideally a Seven Sisters school if they were uh, able to win admission. And by that, I mean, of course, Smith, Wellesley, Mount Holyoke, Radcliffe, Barnard, uh, Bryn Mawr. There were other options. There were other women's colleges, many other women's colleges, in fact. And there were co-ed schools. There had been co-ed schools in the United States since the 19th century. Right. Schools like Oberlin, mm -hmm. uh, private institutions, many of the major universities, the land-grant universities especially, and private institutions like Stanford and Chicago, founded mm -hmm. in the last decade of the 19th century. So there were chances for women to go to school with men, but the most talented women students, if you will, the women students whose credentials paralleled those of the men who were going to Princeton and Yale, we're going to women's colleges. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then, you know, here you get to the late 1960s, still, still these places, uh, these elite institutions are all men. A lot of men who have been there feel very strongly, let's keep it that way. Okay, what starts to turn the tide? Because as you point out, within a few years, like, it's shocking how many places go co-ed. It's not like it happens slowly. It happens like in a big bang. It's a flood of decisions in a very short space of time. We have to set the context. The 1960s provide uh, an important context with, as you said, the women's movement, the student movement, the anti-war movement, the civil rights uh, movement. There's enormous upheaval in the 1960s, and universities at the end of the decade look very different from what they had looked like at the beginning of the decade. Men and women protest together. They engage in registering black voters together. The notion that they wouldn't go to school together seems uh, increasingly anachronistic. But the real trigger for the change is that admission patterns begin to change. Yale and Princeton in particular experience this, and they're the prime movers here. Mm. What they begin to see is that the high school students they lovingly refer to as the best boys are beginning to show in their application patterns and in their decisions once offered admission that they don't want to go to schools that are all male anymore. They want to go to school with girls. And that is what makes these schools pay attention and decide to act. So what they imagine is that if they admit women, it will be a way of retaining their hold on these best boys. Mm. It will be a way of recovering. It will be a way of competing more effectively with Harvard 
this is the point where Harvard begins to pull away from Princeton and Yale. They had gone head-to-head in admissions for a long time before this. As recently as the early 1960s, they had been competing evenly. Well, Harvard has Radcliffe up the street. And so by the late 1960s, Harvard is pulling away from Princeton and Yale. Princeton and Yale don't like this. So admitting women becomes the strategic means of regaining their hold on the best men. So women are admitted not because there's a moral commitment to educating women, not because of some high-minded conviction about the education of women, but because having women will presumably improve the education of men. Yeah, that's interesting. Not for equality, but to beat Harvard. Yeah, like, you know, let's keep our priorities straight kind of thing. Absolutely. Right. So normally we think of important decisions, momentous decisions being made by really important kind of high-ranking people. But the way you describe it, a lot of these important decisions that were made around elite schools going co-ed and opening their doors and uh, making their education available to both men and women, that decision in a lot of ways is prompted by 17-year-old boys, right? High school seniors, <laughs> right? Who are saying, you right. know, you know, Yale and Princeton, I'm not that interested, right? I'm not that interested in going to this school because you don't have women. And because of what they're doing, because of what they are saying and doing, Yale and Princeton are forced to kind of start this domino and, and react and like go co-ed. What changed about 17-year-old boys? Because they once, uh, presumably, were okay with going to all-male schools because they had for a long, long time. I think what changed uh, was that they were growing up in the 1960s, and they saw and to some extent participated in the student movement, the civil rights movement. The world around them was such that the kind of all-male as Robert Goheen of Princeton used to call it, the monastic institutions were just no longer very appealing to young students who had grown up amid the tumult of the 1960s. So we talked a little bit about this, but talk about the forces or the people who arrayed themselves against coeducation, who when this began to be discussed said, this is a mistake, don't do this. Like, how strong were those forces? Who were they? Explain that. Uh, The alumni of these institutions were generally not happy about uh, the idea of coeducation. The title of my book comes from a letter from a Dartmouth alumnus to the chair of the Dartmouth trustees in 1970. This is a Dartmouth alumnus class of 1929, and he, with Dartmouth considering coeducation, he wrote, for God's sake, for Dartmouth's sake, and for everyone's sake, keep the damned women out. Uh, He was very representative Mm. of uh, the alumni of these institutions. The Princeton alumni uh, had colorful language that very well matched uh, that Yale alumnus <laughs> you quoted, describing coeducation as a nutty idea. Uh, it would be easier, one of them wrote, to establish an old-fashioned whorehouse and a lot less expensive. People believed that if Princeton were to coeducate, Princeton as they knew it would be 
dead. These alumni had wonderful experiences at these all-male institutions. They had great pride in uh, the education that they had obtained, in the all-male camaraderie they had experienced, which had set them on an excellent course for their lives. These were friends they made who would be important social and professional connections going forward. The notion that anyone would tamper with that sounded to them like heresy. So I'm sure you've talked to a lot of the first women who who got into and went to some of these schools. Tell me like a couple of stories that you remember that struck you about like, you know, things they said or experiences that they had in those first years. It was very challenging. These were brave young women who imagined that they would be pioneers that it would be an adventure, that there was something special to be gained by uh, being among the first women at schools undergoing major uh, transformation. And so it was exciting. But at the same time, it was really tough. They were under a microscope. The press was all over them, Mm. swarming the campus. And their fellow students and their teachers simply didn't know how to deal with them. Some examples, the student who says that she walked into a study room in Firestone Library at Princeton, 40 men in the room studying. She walked in and a giggle started around the room. And she said she left and never went back because it was just so awkward. Hmm. Men swarming the dormitories where the women lived, uh, trying to gain dates, but at the same time, reluctant to ask for dates because there were so many more men than women that the men figured the women already had dates lined Hmm. up, and why ask and be shot down? So the Princeton women I knew in the early years of co-education would lament that they were staying home on Saturday night because the guys (laughs) simply hadn't ask them out. The experience in the classroom was extremely awkward. Usually there were one, maybe two women in, in a class, and the Students didn't know what to make of her, and the instructors certainly uh, didn't. People would always ask the women students for the women's point of view, Mm. and that made sense, perhaps, if it was a course in literature or psychology where a gendered point of view might be relevant, but math or physics. (laughs) um, What's the women's um, point of view on calculus? Like, there's a divide, maybe. Yeah. Um, Instructors were really tough On these first uh, women, an art history professor at Dartmouth would post uh, slides of nudes on the screen and run his hand up and down the thighs of the nudes. There were faculty members at Yale who repeatedly reminded the women students that their arrival was the cause of the fact that the men could no longer uh, walk naked and swim naked in Payne Whitney Gymnasium. (laughs) (laughs) A faculty member at Yale, the chair of the history department, was asked by a new woman student if he would consider offering a course in women's history. And he responded, that would be like teaching the history of dogs. One Princeton woman in the first co-ed class said, 
uh, that she had never felt so alone as a woman, and that her experience as an American field service student in India in high school had uh, been extremely valuable to her because she felt at Princeton as though she was in a foreign country. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I bet a lot of those professors, too, felt like they weren't listened to in the decision you know, to go co-ed. Oh, and they were. And, right. And and that this had, like, been forced on them. And, you know, the decision could be forced on them, but nobody could force, you know, the way they were going to act. Like, nobody could tell them what to do. Exactly. So I should add to this. You joined the Princeton faculty in 1969, right as this avalanche of schools is starting to go co-ed. When did Princeton go co-ed? In 1969. So the first women students arrived as I uh, joined the faculty. What did you see? Like when you went home at the end of the day, what did you think? Well, this was all new to me. I had been a graduate student at Harvard, and then I came to Princeton as a faculty member. My my advisor at Harvard, Frank Friedel, for whom I was uh, teaching sections in a new black history course in the fall of 1968, recommended me for the job at Princeton and laughed when he told me that. And I laughed because there were no women at Princeton. And he said, but it would be good for them to have to think about it. So when I arrived for my interview at Princeton in the fall of 1968, the history department chair said, it isn't that we have a policy against hiring women. It's that no one's ever suggested it before. (laughs) (laughs) So I was coming into a world in which the men didn't know what to make of me. I didn't know what to make of the men. And as I say, the whole thing was new to me. Mm -hmm. I walked into my first classes in the history department comprised uh, entirely of men. And all the young men in the class stood up when I walked in and pulled out my chair. Uh, This was a discussion, Mm. uh, a precept. And that went on for a little while. One of my advisees brought an apple to me in my office uh, hours. (laughs) On my course evaluations, I got comments like, um, there is less idle joking in your classes, or you teach from a feminine point of view. So there was a (laughs) lot of getting used to on all sides. These These were male students, after all who had applied to Princeton as an all-male institution, and except for the uh, freshmen, had come to Princeton when it was all-male. So some some of the students I knew best said I was their first woman teacher since sixth grade. So there was a lot of learning going on on uh, all uh, sides, and I was participating in and watching an institution in the midst of a really fundamental Uh, change. Probably I didn't uh, appreciate as fully as I might uh, the dimensions of that change uh, as I was living it. So at that time, and and still today, um, most Americans are not college graduates, and certainly even most Americans who've gone to college didn't go to this tiny sliver um, of elite schools. So I wonder how you think this move towards coeducation has impacted the country more broadly, or if it or if it has? Well, what it has done is to open 
uh, to talented women. Every educational opportunity historically available to talented men. And that means uh, that women have unfettered access to the best faculty, the best laboratory and library resources, the best opportunities for uh, learning at the highest level. Now, that doesn't affect the broad population, except that people who are educated in these institutions hold a disproportionate share of the leadership positions in our society generally, in the professions, at least uh, up until this point, in uh, public life. And it matters that those opportunities are available equally to women as well as to men. Nancy weiss Malkiel is a professor emeritus of history at Princeton. She's also the author of Keep the Damn Women Out, The Struggle for Coeducation. Nancy, thank you so much for this great conversation. Kara, thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've got more on our website about why some schools did admit women early on and then either changed their minds or pulled back a little, like, for example, Stanford. Early in the 1890s, it became very clear that there were many women coming to Stanford and they were doing very well, on average better than the men. Mrs. Stanford, Malkiel says, was worried that Stanford would be overrun by women. We've got more on schools that had similar concerns. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover, care, believe. And by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1.